Welcome to you today. I'm Paul Peppis, director of the Oregon Humanities Center. My guest today is Sarah Walt, associate professor of English and environmental studies at the University of Oregon. Her research and teaching focus on the relationship between race and the environment, immigration and citizenship, food studies, environmental justice, and nature and popular culture. Wald's first book, The Nature of California, Race, Citizenship, and Farming Since the Dust Bowl, was published in 2016. Wald is an organizer of the Environmental Justice, Race, and Public Land Symposium, which will be held May 9th through 11th, 2018 at the U of O. Thanks, Sarah, for coming on the show. Thank you for having me. So first, um, you, uh, you are an environmental humanist. Tell us how you define environmental humanities. I think of the environmental humanities as a set of conversations happening among scholars in a variety of different humanistic fields, such as philosophy, literature, religious studies, history, where they're addressing not only people within their own discipline, but outside of their discipline, and forging conversations that are truly interdisciplinary, and including social scientists and scientists in the conversation as well, to really think about questions of meaning and value and representation as a way of addressing our current environmental moment. So um, imagine that I'm deeply skeptical of this idea. Wait a minute, wait a minute. What is studying literature and philosophy, how is that gonna help address these pressing environmental concerns of our moment? So I always go back to a moment in a work by Lawrence Buell, an uh, environmental literary scholar that really influenced me. And it's in this book, Environmental Imagination. And he's talking about how the environmental crisis is not just a crisis of the sciences or of policy, but he calls it a crisis of the imagination. And we need to understand how we have imagined our relationship to the more than human world in the past and the multiple ways that has happened. And also we need to find new and alternative ways of imagining our relationship to the more than human world in the future if we're going to live in a world that's both socially and environmentally just. And I've always carried that with me. Literature and history and philosophy and these fields help us understand the past, but also the cultural productions of art and film and literature help us understand new ways of looking at those relationships for the future. So let's uh, try to get a little more specific here um, through the lens of your first book, um, The Nature of California. So tell us how the sort of generalizations used to make, how they, how they work in your book. What is, how, how is your book practicing this set of interests? So my book looks at representations of farmers and farm workers in California from the Great Depression to the present. And I'm really interested in how ideas about nature end up shaping the racial gatekeeping of the nation. Who gets to be a true American who is written out of the nation? And I'm particularly interested in how representations of and by people from marginalized groups, mostly people of color, write back to those assumptions. Write farm worker literature that responds to the idea of the all-American farmer by claiming a place in the nation or by denaturalizing the very idea of the nation. And so the book looks at a variety of texts from John Steinbeck's The Grapes of Wrath to Ernesto Galarza's Strangers in Our Fields, which is about the Bracero program um, during and after World War II, to Helena Maria Viramontes's 1995 novel, Under the Feet of Jesus, to look at how 
farm worker representations contest these assumptions and navigate these assumptions, and they do so in a variety of ways. And these works really help us understand how these conversations about farm workers and agriculture are conversations about immigration and about national identity, but they're also conversations about land and the more than human world. What should our relationship to nature be? Is nature a form of property? What does it mean to belong to the land and what does it mean to have the land belong to you? Mm -hmm. you, you mentioned that one of the sort of efforts of the book is to denaturalize certain um, mythological understandings of what it means to be an American, and in particular, you're interested in this, the figure of the American farmer. So say a little bit about what that mythological national figure is like and the work that that figure was, has done and how, how this critique functions against that figure. We have a longstanding interest and investment in the figure of the American farmer that goes back at least as far as Thomas Jefferson. And Jefferson argues that we should be a nation of small farmers. He sees farmers as the chosen people of God, as more moral than other Americans, but also as more economically independent and self-reliant, and because of that, more politically independent, and thus through their morality and their independence, forming the bedrock of democracy. And this idea has stayed with us regardless of whether it was true at the time or is true now. So uh, several years ago, there was a Super Bowl ad for Dodge Ram that really stuck with me because it is an homage to the American farmer. And at the end, when it turns to the image of the truck, it says, to the farmer and all of us. And it sort of suggests that if you are the kind of true American who will buy this Dodge Ram truck, you have a little farmer inside of you, that that actually is the essence of what it means to be an American, to be the farmer. And this stays with us even in the alternative food movement. So there was this very popular ad by Chipotle about this, um, this beautiful animation of this scarecrow who works in a factory and is exhausted by the exploitation of animals and nature and labor and retreats to their home on this little farm in this little red barn and starts plucking fruit and cooking and comes back to the city to sell what is clearly a Chipotle meal. Mm -hmm. um, and in here, Chipotle is selling these ideas of environmental and social sustainability through the idea of the farmer, um, erasing the other kinds of relationships that go into American agriculture and have always gone into American agriculture. Mm -hmm. um, and started this project just fascinated by how much this image of the American farmer has stayed with us, even as we know that farm laborers in this country are often denied citizenship rights, either legally or substantively, that they their voices aren't heard even when they do have legal citizenship status. You use a term in your book, denizenship. Say a little bit about that term. I am really interested in what it means to understand our belonging to communities and to place, not through just categories of legal citizenship, but belonging to that place. And belonging to that place, not just in terms of a long-term rootedness, but a way that accepts and encourages different kinds of migrant communities to be belonging to where they are and recognizes that we all have multiple relationships to place and that place itself is not a stable entity. And so I really was interested in how a lot of this 
literature and cultural production by and about farm workers invested not in citizenship, but in alternate ways of belonging. So to give a concrete example, in Under the Feet of Jesus by Helena Maria Vermontes, the protagonist, Estrella, is a citizen. It is her, her birth certificates are literally under the statue that her mother has of Jesus. So her, that's what's in one way, one reading of the text, what's under the feet of Jesus or birth certificate. And yet, when she is concerned about being picked up by immigration, her mother points at the earth and says, you are not an orphan, and really demands her inclusion based on her belonging to the land and the labor and contributions that she does. And she says, don't make them feel like a, don't let them make you feel like a criminal for picking the food that they're going to eat for dinner. And I really love that even though Viramontis could have used citizenship in that moment, she really chooses not to. And I mm -hmm. see that again and again in this literature of farm workers. So you've, you've in passing, you, you talked about the alternate, alternative food movement. One of your other areas of expertise is food studies. So first, what is food studies as an academic discipline? Food studies is an interdisciplinary approach, often to food systems. And so understanding food from production to consumption, and much like the environmental humanities, although in some ways more so because it's not just the humanities, it is interdisciplinary. All of the areas in which I'm interested in are deeply interdisciplinary areas. Um, and food studies exists distinct from the alternative food movement, although many scholars in food studies look at and examine the alternative food movement. I think about what I bring to food studies as being a food justice lens, mm -hmm. and I think of food justice as environmental justice applied to food studies. So thinking about issues of equal access, equal exposure to harms and benefits from the point of production to the point of consumption. And so my approach to food studies always emphasizes those questions of justice, but also really looking at farm workers and the situation and cultural production by and about farm workers and making sure as a category when we think about the local food movement and go to farmers markets, we don't lose sight of farm workers and we don't assume that because we're buying something local that it wasn't picked by farm workers. If you're eating a fruit or vegetable in the United States, it was probably touched by a by a farm worker. Those are areas that are largely not mechanized. And we often forget that and imagine if we walk into Whole Foods and buy an organic apple that we're, we, we buy that image of the American farmer and we forget that local or organic doesn't mean just labor conditions for farm workers. So one of the ways that you try to address this is to focus on the cultural productions that farm workers make. And about farm workers, not just by farm workers. So tell us about some of the other kinds of cultural productions that you look at aside from these novels uh, about farm workers. Well, I'm also really interested in nonfiction mm -hmm. prose. Mm -hmm. Ernesto Galarza's Strangers in Our Field is a pamphlet that he produced with photographs about the Bracero program, which was a guest worker program that brought in Mexican workers starting in World War II but continued afterwards on temporary contracts to labor in the U.S. fields. And Strangers in Our Fields really emphasizes this term strangers and us, so it seems like it's about a division, but it's also really invested in the human rights of 
these workers and their experiences in the program and the injustices of the program. And similarly, I'm interested in Carrie McWilliams' Factories in the Field, which was a nonfiction expose. It was published the same year as The Grapes of Wrath, and it was hugely influential. It's Carrie McWilliams, not John Steinbeck, that the Associated Farmers call agricultural pest number one. Mm -hmm. And so these nonfiction works really have a lot to tell us in terms of how individual thinkers were challenging the popular ideas of their time, but also the ways in which they were still trapped in them. I think we can learn a lot about the cultural logic in a moment by looking at how people who were resistant to those frameworks and challenging their, these, those frameworks were not always able to escape them themselves. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. So um, tell us a little bit about how you tried to um, bring this work, this approach um, to your students. What are some of the techniques you use? What are the, some of the courses that you teach that, that try to communicate this information? So I teach uh, the 200 person Introduction to Environmental Studies Humanities course every year. And I teach this class as from the forest to the fields. And so we look at these ideas starting with questions around the history of public lands in the United States and move into questions of agriculture and farming. And one of the, we read Viramontes is Under the Feet of Jesus in this class, but students also work with Food for Lane County and every student in that class spends three hours at a community garden that is under the auspices of Food for Lane County. And as part of the course, students write a letter to a farm worker. They choose a character in Viramontes' novel and they write a letter to that character drawing on their experiences with the class content uh, from readings to lectures, but also their hands-on experience with the community garden. So this component of community service as part of what happens in your classes, um, you've begun to explain why that's crucial, but be a little more, say a little bit more about why it's important for you that, that your students do this kind of community service in the classroom, in the class. I think one of the most important concepts in environmental humanities is positionality, to understand how our own sense of identity, our own life experiences, our own position in the socioeconomic um, hierarchies of our world shapes the kinds of questions we ask, the kinds of knowledge that we bring. And I think that we learn a lot of that through novels and through literature, which can ask us to inhabit the worldviews of others. But I also think there's something really useful about connecting that to lived experience and working with community groups allows students to enhance their own lived experience and bring new um, new ideas to that so they can think about what does it mean to volunteer for three hours and is that a positive experience where you feel good about what you're con communicating and contributing to the world but how might that be different from being a farm worker in a novel that talks about life being the same row after row and that there's no difference from 4 to 14 to 40. Um, so I think that enhances it. I also think communities have knowledge and I think that knowledge does not only fit into the lens of scholarly conversation and that's one of the lessons of a novel like Under the Feet of Jesus. It really emphasizes the experiential knowledge and the embodied knowledge that Estrella brings to her own political consciousness and one of the messages I want my classes to impart to students is that we need to respect and learn from and give back to the communities to which we belong and to which um, 
we owe so much. And so community engagement is a place of recognizing community knowledge and also recognizing our debt to that those communities. So this brings me to um, the Environmental Justice Race and Public Land Symposium. So tell us about the inspiration for that uh, symposium and also the way in which the ideals that you've just been articulated are being brought to bear uh, in the organization and the, the speakers, et cetera, of the, of the symposium. So there's been a growing conversation about bringing in equity, diversity, and inclusion works to public land. And in January 2017, before leaving office, President Obama issued a presidential memorandum specifically on diversity and inclusion in our public lands. And there's been a variety of organizations thinking about public land use and equity, from who is hiking to who the National Park Service is hiring to whose histories are being remembered and how in national park sites. And at the same time, there's been a growing scholarly conversation about these same topics. And I'm very interested in those because of the ways that national forests and national parks and nature have stood as a significant part of our idea about who is an American and who gets to be American in a very exclusionary way. So what does it do to our ideas about nature and nation to sort of expand that through an equity lens? But I also was very aware of the where the place of environmental justice what does it mean to manage public lands for environmental justice? We have an executive order from 1994 on environmental justice. Are these conversations about equity, diversity, and inclusion the same as or compatible with conversations about environmental justice on public lands? Mm -hmm. And then how do we bring in indigenous perspectives on public lands? And so the symposium really tries to bring those three sets of questions together as really urgent conversations for us to be having in this moment about public lands. So tell us uh, who some of the participants are. I'm really excited about our participants because the symposium is not just academics. We have a number of practitioners. So the Avarna Group, which does consultant, uh, they're consultants and they work with groups like the Wilderness Society on these kinds of questions of equity, diversity, and inclusion. We have Chandra Terry, who works for Region 6, the United States Forest Service who's doing on the ground work for Region 6, which is our local region of the Forest Service on putting these ideas into action. We have a number of, um, Ron Reed from the Crook is coming to speak, so a number of indigenous voices and perspectives throughout the symposium. We also have leading scholars of the field. So our keynote addresses by Carolyn Finney, author of Black Faces, White Spaces, Kyle Powles White, who's a noted philosopher on um, indigeneity and the environment is a keynote address. Laura Polito, who's one of the founding and most prominent voices in environmental justice is speaking. So we really have a wonderful combination of people doing this work on the ground, indigenous perspectives, remembering that we're holding the symposium on Kalapuya land, and also academic voices. Why is it that um, this uh, concern about public lands is particularly pressing now? Why is this something that people should be paying attention to now? I have two answers for that question. One, we know that our public lands, I'm gonna stop myself on that. I don't think we should say our public lands because that actually erases indigenous presence. Mm -hmm. um, 
and is something I struggle with in my own vocabulary. It's how mm -hmm. these kinds of cultural common sense comes through in the way we talk, even when we know better. Mm -hmm. um, public lands in the United States are under threat of privatization, and they're under threat of e increased resource extraction. And if you think about something like the Bears Ears Monument, where a number of indigenous groups really led the way for getting protection for Bears Ears as a sacred space, and now that protection has been revoked. I really think we need to be focusing on the question of public lands and who they are for and what they are for. I also think we need an inclusive environmentalism for the 21st century, and I think that means we need to deal with the historical whiteness of the environmental movement and the challenges that environmental justice has brought to the mainstream environmental movement, and that that's what a lot of this work on equity, diversity, and inclusion that environmental groups in our region are struggling with um, has really foregrounded. So I think both because of the threats to public lands and because of the need for an inclusive 21st century environmentalism, this is the conversation to be having now, one of them. Let me ask you to elaborate a little bit about this historical whiteness of environmentalism in the United States. Tell us a little bit more about that. There are two ways we can think about it, that there's often been environmental leaders, environmental organizations have often been dominated by white people and the huge contributions of people of color to environmental movements have been erased. They're not the stories that make it to the textbooks and college classrooms. They're not who we study in environmental literature classes. Um, we're starting to see a change in that, but that's historically been the case. There's also ideas about conservation and preservation in the U.S. have been built on particular ideas about wilderness that went hand in hand with native dispossession. and also exclusion from particular places. So grappling with the whiteness of the environmental movement is not just a demographic problem. It requires us to rethink the history of ideas and the way that ideas have shaped environmentalism as a space for some and not a space for others. And can you say something about um, the kind of work that's being done in your judgment on the cutting edge of, of this effort to diversify and bring equity and inclusion to the environmental activism that's going on in the country now? I think a lot of groups are taking it seriously, particularly in the Pacific Northwest. I think there's a lot of work to do. I don't think we're there yet. Mm -hmm. But one of the things I'm really excited about with this symposium is that we have 14 community organizations and federal agencies that are co-sponsoring the symposium and bringing their staff and volunteers to participate in this conversation. There's a growing network of organizations thinking about these issues. There's also an amazing rise of grassroots organizations um, that are working on this. And I think the Next 100 Coalition is a coalition of organizations across the U.S. that really pushed the Obama administration to release that memorandum. And I think their call to action on the 100th anniversary of the National Park Service really led to that um, really interesting presidential memorandum. Um, and I would name groups like Latino Outdoors and Outdoor Afro as organizations that are also really working to change who we think of as environmentalists. Because if we want an environmental, inclusive environmentalism, and we only imagine white people when we imagine environmentalists, we're not bringing some of the people who really need to be at the table to the table. I guess I need to ask you about, um, you've been talking about the pressure that was brought to bear on the Obama administration and the release of this, um, um, executive order during the Obama administration. We're not in the Obama administration anymore. Um, 
how how is the how are these environmental movements responding to the current administration in particular i'm thinking of what's going on at the epa or around questions of uh, the privatization of public lands i think i would suggest one of the ways these i've seen some organizations responding is really by starting to think seriously about some of these questions of social justice and environmental justice in new ways mm -hmm. and really recommitting themselves to doing internal work around coalition building and working and reaching out to communities of color and valuing the work that environmental justice organizations have been doing. Um, I think that is really important um, in terms of federal lands. I think there's been a lot of legislative threats and environmental groups have been on the defensive, but I think they're also working on thinking about ways they can be not just on the defensive, but creating new kinds of collaborations and coalitions to um, not just survive, but find new ways of imagining a relationship to the environment, even when public lands are so much and so clearly under threat. Mm -hmm. So um, tell us about the stuff you're working on now. So we talked about the first book. Tell us about the second book or w other things that you're working on now. So I will mention two projects I'm particularly excited about. I am working on an anthology called Latinx Literary Environmentalism with Professor David Vasquez here at University of Oregon, but also Sarah Jaquette Ray and Priscilla Ibarra. And we are bringing together an amazing collection of interviews with authors like Helena Maria Viramontes and Sherry Moraga and work by scholars really based in Latinx studies, thinking about the environmental imagination in Latinx studies and what environmental studies can learn from that. Um, I'm also working on a monograph about these diversity, equity, and inclusion efforts that are going on right now. And I'm really interested in questions of meaning and values. There's a lot of social scientists engaged in this work um, and doing really interesting work uh, around it. But I really want to look at things like the blog posts on Outdoor Afro and the videos put out by Latino Outdoors and what are the ideas about identity and belonging and the environment that are wor at work in those cultural productions and how do they relate to both literary traditions in Latinx studies and black studies around the environment but also to broader conversations in the environmental humanities. So tell me a little bit about the the uh, anthology of uh, Latinx environmentalism. What's the, um, is this, uh, are you imagining that this is a book that will be used in classrooms? Is that the idea? I think it will be used in classrooms because of the range, but I also think this is gonna be a book that's going to shift conversations in the field. There are a number of leading scholars in Latinx studies who have contributed to this anthology. Uh, one of the most interesting things about working on this in, is that as we reached out to both scholars and authors, a very common answer was, but I don't do environmental studies. Mm -hmm. And so one of the, the main, one of the things that this anthology has done is help us understand how the environmental work that is actually ongoing and has been going on for a long time in these fields gets written out of environmental studies and doesn't, even this, the scholars and the authors doing this work don't see that as what their work is doing. And so what can we all learn from the kinds of questions that these scholars and authors are um, asking us to think about? Well, Sarah, we've come to the end of our time. I wanna thank you for taking the time to speak with us today. It's been a real pleasure. Thank you. I've been speaking with Sarah Wald, Associate Professor of English and Environmental Studies at the University of Oregon. 
Her first book, The Nature of California, Race, Citizenship, and Farming Since the Dust Bowl was published in 2016. She is also an organizer of the Environmental Justice, Race, and Public Land Symposium, which will be held May 9th through 11th, 2018 at the U of O. Thanks again. Thanks so much for watching.